I suppose I was lucky. I just fell into it. I didn't plan, plan it or anything. Um, the first thing I ever did was the first gig. And uh, just happened after that. We were infamous staff for the first gig. He wanted to meet you. Oh, it was lovely of you, thank you. Unfortunately, a lot, lot of people that are making music are thinking more about business than making music. Susie and the Banshees. Philip, John, and Aaron are all from Norwood. Excellent. Which is and sort of like Chislehurst, Kent is to London, I guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as our seg as we segue into the yeah topic. yeah into the actual subject Thank of the podcast. Welcome to another <laughs> episode of Yeah Uh Huh with Lisa, Aaron, and Phil. And today we continue our Susie Sue <laughs> retrospective here at the year of mm -hmm. her comeback concert tour. Mm -hmm. which has taken her from Los Angeles to Troxy, England. and mm -hmm. Or the Troxy, I think, was the name of the, ven the venue in London that she played recently. Mm -hmm. But it, uh, it continues. I think it's going on into 2024. Hold, hold that up again, Aaron. I didn't see it. Yeah, there's the Nice. Okay. Oh, cool. There's the book by our esteemed yeah. guest, yeah. Lawrence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Philip and I did buy the Kindle because I wouldn't be able to read much of it by the time the actual book arrived. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm re I'm really grateful to do this and really grateful you bought it. So thank you on both yeah. Yeah. both counts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've enjoyed we've done two episodes on uh, the the band. We've done um what we call Aaron's Audio Audibles. We've covered Join Hands and Juju. Um wow. so uh, we did that with our friend Her Herman de Tolinari, who you may or may yeah, not know. Herman's wonderful. What a wonderful yeah. guy. He is a great guy. Awesome. We really enjoy having him on. Yeah. Um, He's been really supportive uh, to me, um, furnishing me with all sorts of vignettes and information for the, for my book and just really friendly and wonderful. Just a goldmine of information. Right. Wonderful. He definitely is. I mean, you know, just, almost obscura even. Yeah. yeah. That much of an yeah. expert. You ask him a yeah. question and he'll start going, you know, and he, he's, English is not his native language, but he'll start on, you know, telling you a story that uh, eight minutes later, it's like, it's, you know, if you could record it, it would be worthy of publication. It was like you yeah. know, the, the references yes. and the, and then. And we say in the most accounts. honorific and positive way. Yeah, right. in, in spite yeah, of the yeah. fact that sometimes I had trouble tracking everything he was saying. Well, he's like a true journalist. If we could yeah. speak um yeah dutch right i'm sure that it would be even more astounding oh, absolutely encyclopedic yeah, knowledge yeah. of this era but mm -hmm. uh, so welcome lawrence it's a pleasure to have you it's a pleasure to be here thank you very much right hello um listeners to yeah uh -huh. this week we're talking to lawrence hedges <laughs>
he wrote a book about Susie and the Banshees, the early years. There's a, a second book coming out. We've already had a teaser. So yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Having read this one, I'm looking forward to mm-hmm. the next. Mm-hmm. Thank you um, so much. Yeah. Um, I had seen the book. The, the not by, so early years. The mm-hmm. not so early. Yeah, the middle years. Then, <laughs> then the latter years. Yeah. Um, Sometimes but, it's hard to stop. Yeah, pretty soon it'll be like a William. Uh, Especially like a, when you enjoy this. <laughs> pretty soon we we'll have like an encyclopedic edition, like the Winston Churchill um, history of the Second World War. It's got a cool title, but I can't, I can't tease any more than that. Okay. I'm, my, hand, my hands are a little tied, so yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. So I feel like we've really covered, you know, including this episode, we will, we will have really covered the early years of this band. Um, so Lawrence, I'm wondering, uh, do you, are you in the vicinity of Chislehurst, Kent, where Susie was uh, born, May 27? No, 19? no, no. You know the area? Um, I know it a little bit. I mean, for me, the parallels, as it, I think, I think I cover in the in the early part of the book. So <laughs> I grew up. My my misspent teenage years were in a place called Croydon, which I suspect no one has heard of. <laughs> I've actually heard of Croydon, but I can't yeah, remember okay. exactly. Oh, um, YouTube. It was in the book. Well, yeah, that too. But so, um, so Chislehurst and Kent. So where I went to school a million years ago, um, <laughs> it was kind of it was in that area. So south of the river in London. So you know we have a kind of you know north of the river uh, is where all the kind of the hub of the action is. You know, so you've got you know, central London, Soho, and, you know, you've got east, the east end of London, et cetera. But um, this sounds a bit disingenuous, but I think that there are, part, there are parts of South London, um, so Chislehurst, Bromley, Croydon, it really is the suburbs. So that's why I felt I had a kind of um, immediate connection with the band, because it's like there are places um, you have a bit of an affection for, but you really want to escape from. And but it's quite an interesting one because you know you've got people like um, you know I mean like Bromley's most famous son even though he was born in Brixton uh, David Bowie uh, and I think that there's something about it I don't I don't know I don't know whether there's a cause and effect I haven't got any empirical evidence for it but there's something about the suburbs that brings out maybe a fair amount of rage but also this kind of real wanting to do something that kind of DIY attitude, wanting to kind of get out and and be creative and start something, which I think without being reductive about it, I think that's what the band really wanted to do. And both Steve Severin and Susie, I mean, they were part of this group, as you know, called the Bromley Contingent, Mm -hmm. but really none of them were were kind of native sort of Kent. uh, You know, they didn't grow up in Kent. You know, both Susie and Severin were from from different parts of London. It just so happened. It was happenstance. That's where they were. That's where, that's where they grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kismet. So like how far outside of, uh, if, I were, if I were wanting to go to the O2 arena or something in London, how far okay. out from that would be uh, Chislehurst? Um, well, um, I'm going to say something really, really boring in middle age, but because it's so well connected, that would probably take you about, this is really contentious, but probably take you about 
maybe 40 minutes, something like that. Okay. Um, but in the 19, late 1970s, wow, it could have taken you about two days. No, I'm only kidding. Not really <laughs> two days, but probably, you know, about a couple of hours. But yeah, it's, um, but London now is quite um, sort of homogenous, really, and homogenous in the sense that it's really kind of well connected. So, you know, um, you know, I can make the analogy when I was in in Croydon and going to gigs in London, the Hammer, as it was then, the Hammersmith Odeon, which really dates me. I mean, that's where all, that's where all the kind of major bands would play, whether it was you know whether it was um, Susie and the Banshees or you know or bands like Black Sabbath, things like that. That that's where they would play. So I'd get I'd get on the train from from a place called Thornton Heath, which is even more obscure mm-hmm. in Surrey, near Croydon, just outside Croydon. And then, you know, that was where all the action was, yeah. you know, because nothing nothing was happening in Croydon. Um, there were gig venues. There was the um, there was the Greyhound and sub subterranean venues. But if you wanted to kind of see bands, then you go north of the river. That was quite a convoluted answer, wasn't it, really? No, I mean, that's great. No, no, what I'm trying to get at. I, I do want to say that I just turned 57, and you're making me feel a little old here, dude. <laughs> so I know I'm the oldest <laughs> person on the podcast again. Yeah. Well, I remember Hammersmith. The only time I'm not is when his sister shows up. Wanted, I, wanted won't, I, won't me- I won't mention age again. Age is just a yeah. number. Yeah? Is, Absolutely. Is the O2 just, just rebranding of the Hammersmith Odeon? Or is it a new facility entirely? No, so the so the O2 is the um is the like so there are O2 venues all around the UK. Oh, I see. And the O2, we're talking the O2 about the one where Led Zeppelin the, had the reunion. Yeah, that's sure. it. We're talking yeah. about the dome. Yeah, which is in um in uh, oh gosh, I should know this because I walked past it a lot in a place called Greenwich, which is like the far reaches of London uh-huh. in the east, and you know where um where Docklands is, which are all, for us, these are kind of really big skyscrapers. That's where okay. all, the, all the kind of, you know, where all the banks are, et cetera. Um, but yeah, so there's the O2, which is in that part of London where Zeppelin played in uh, 2007. But the Hammersmith Odeon, where I used to go to, is now the Eventium Apollo. I mean, all these places have been yeah. rebranded. I know they're all, they all have new names, but yeah, everybody, <laughs> a lot of famous concerts at the at the Hammersmith Odeon. Oh, sure, sure. sure. I remember one of Zeppelin's better uh, uh, bootlegs was a recording from the Hammersmith Odeon. In fact, there's a video, yeah. there's a video of it. But I, yeah. what I was getting at is how far, because um, from Chislehurst to get to the clubs, the 100 Club, or like to, to you know, on the, towards downtown London would be yeah. a pretty long, arduous journey for someone well i'm i'm overcooking it a bit it wouldn't really i mean it would it would be it would be like a train ride it would be a train ride you know an overground train and then then you'd be up there yeah or by whatever means of escape you know kind of if we're to get really granular about it so like public transport bus um tube you know metro but yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't have been that bad wouldn't but what was going on in in culturally at the time and kind of, we're kind of jumping past Susie's early life. She had a bout with ulcerative colitis that was very uh, impactful on her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, she kind of discovered music yeah. uh, with all of her idle time. Like uh, she'd yeah. see David Bowie on television and she kind That's of 
around the age of 14. That's kind of where it yeah. all started. But when she started like getting into the music scene and she met Steve Severin at this concert, a Roxy music mm-hmm. concert, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was, it was somewhat dangerous for, especially a punk rocker or, uh, or someone, you know, that, uh, dressed the way she did or whatever to take that journey sometimes because of the uh negative connotations well i mean there were society like, was putting on them there were there were gangs of angry old ladies out there they were beating people with their umbrellas and stuff oh no that was the last that was the last podcast honey yeah. honey <laughs> yeah but, no i'm talking here's about in heads <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm sorry well I, I'm, maybe I'm the, gonna... uh-huh go ahead I was just going to interject because what you've just said, it reminds me of, um, I, think that Susie was, I think Susie was kind of like, not the original, but but I think she prided herself on being an agent provocateur. I mean, she wouldn't take any nonsense from anyone. Right. And that's right. what just makes her. And the more I, the more I read and the more I talk to people about her, in, including you guys, the more extraordinary she becomes. Um, but that reaction, if we kind of rewind about 150, 160 years ago, or 150 years ago, that was the same reaction that paint, you know, paintings by Monet or Renoir would have had. You know, they were the new guard, and people were attacking them with umbrellas mm-hmm. and throwing eggs at them. That's why they had to be hung so high in the uh, in the academies, in you know, in the um, in in museums. But yeah, so so you're right. But in all honesty. You know, when I was a, when, I mean, Susie's a little bit older than I am, but I remember growing up and that's, you knew there was that sense of danger, no matter, I mean, because we all dress differently and because that time, that kind of compression of time, I think between 1976 and 1980, I mean, you'd already had, you'd had punk, then you'd had post-punk, new wave, and then we were into kind of new romanticism as well. And everything, and you know, kind of more electronica, right? Kind of coming from kraut rock and things like that, with uh, bands like Depeche Mode and uh, you know, kind of post Kraftwerk. But we were all dressing in a way um, that was not meaning to be kind of provocative, but we were all dressing really, really differently because it was like a form of that was our self-expression. But yeah. but but also coming from the suburbs and going up to London, it did feel like a kind of an act of rebellion and it did feel dangerous. So I think whether, you know, whether you were Susie or whether you were kind of A and other, um, it was, you were always running the gauntlet. You know, it was like something was expected to happen and and that's what created a kind of frisson of excitement about it really. But yeah, I think she was, she did, dress uh in a in a certain way and in a seminal way as well because Susie I think as you know she set that kind of uh how can I put it that very kind of however she dressed it was iconographic you know yeah she's the prototype of it all yeah 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 yeah. I I do have one thought about that um the swash ticket in particular one of my accoutrements was a an armband with a swash sticker which is was purely out of high camp. Philip mentions skinheads. Is it yeah. possible that uh, the swastika was almost a uh, like a protective coloring, if you will? Well, that's a re- that's a really really great question. I mean, Susie has 
she, I think she ha she's had that question asked to her a lot over the years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was really interesting because when I met with, um, I'm not deflecting the question, but this is this is all leading up to something, I promise you. Okay. But when I met with um, the band's photographer, uh, I've met with him several times, Ray Stevenson, and Nils, his brother, was the band's manager until 83. Um, I, you know, we... <laughs> The the um, the photographs that he took at the Hundred Club for the original, you know, nineteen seventy six gig. We were zooming in when we were when we were looking at these photographs, and on Marco Peroni's, um, I think it's on his lapel, and you know, and various others. And then he's got he's got the Nazi insignia. So we had to be very very careful. I mean, we you know we kind of uh, we put those into soft focus. We kind of airbrushed those out. But Sid's T-shirt is even more uh, incendiary. And I, you have to really zoom in on that. And I think that's the Belson Babies one. I mean, that's really, you know, kind of, I mean, if we're talking about a precipice, then that's going way kind of over the top. Yeah. But I think with Susie, I think that what she wanted to say, and I don't know, I think she was being absolutely genuine and honest. She wanted to say that that was no, it wasn't a big deal. It was just, it was just a, a symbol we shouldn't give it that power. Yeah, she I mean, she she but I think that was part of the um, that was part of the kind of Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood uh, sort of aesthetic. You know, it was to do things to to shock. It was to do things to kind of um, cause or kind of be a catalyst for conversation. And, you know, and what did that symbol mean and how are people kind of reacting to it? And it was the same way when there was that gig, um, which again, I, this is being shameless again, just thinking about my second book, about them getting skinheads in the audience. And I think it got to the point where they just released the single Israel. And so they went backstage and they all adorned their kind of Star of David t-shirt. So I think for Susie, these symbols are very, are very, very powerful, but I don't think there was any there was any kind of condoning of any particular ideology and i know that one of the songs we're going to talk about is um something like uh, switch yes which is really like uh, you know like the hypocrisy of any kind of ideology or creed it's um it, it's you know they're all just you know how can i how can i i need to be very very careful about how i couch my my words here because we're dealing with something that's so incredibly right. powerful but I think it was just um, it to her. It was a symbol. It was no big deal. She had absolutely no sympathies in you know with the the kind of um, ideology that that we're talking about. And it would almost be, in a sense, at that time, possibly part of the rebellion of you know the the what her parents and grandparents had told her over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. So there's a line and switch, uh, and as they do, people try to make leaps of logic or connections. Uh, one mm -hmm. thing is uh, the verse from um, "Love and Avoid." Uh, yeah. It's very controversial. I don't mm -hmm. even know if I want to repeat it. Yeah. And yeah. also in "Switch," she says something to cross the wires and fuse humanities, which is interpreted by uh, some other people that I've seen online is possibly mean like uh, uh, an allusion to uh, uh, trans, you know, tr trans lifestyle, you know, 
but it also could be it also could be misconstrued as you know sort of some sort of um anytime you start talking about crossing humanities i mean it's it's a little bit it's a little bit edgy um yeah so people yeah. make these leaps of logic but music's highly interpretive you know yeah. Uh, me personally, I take that to a place of um, the Ukraine and uh, Israel. Mm. I, I tend to agree with Lawrence. Anti-war kind of, anti, um, you know. She was, I mean, that was part. Of a lot the, of her stuff was uh, was anti-war. That was part of the to pop, pop culture. But I think that's how we can each interpret. That was part of the punk culture at yeah. the time. And, she, and, and yeah. Yeah. you know, it was. And I, and, I I, think, and I think the other thing, I think the other thing is, it's, you know, a, a, again, because, you know, when I, you know, growing up, I remember it, it was just extraordinary, actually, to think about it. But the guys that I would make, you know, I grew up in a very kind of multicultural area. And there's this amazing, I think it's Shane Meadows. I don't know whether you've seen This Is England at all. But when I was growing up in the 1970s, the the kind of the speed at which people would change their, how can I put it? One moment I had friends that were punks and then they were skin, then, then they'd be into ska music, you know, which as you know, has kind of great sort of um, kind of great DNA with, you know, with, with, with reggae. Mm -hmm. So people, so talking about switch, people would just switch from one thing to an, one thing to another. And, they would just kind of, I think that inadvertently, sometimes what they were doing, if they were dressed as skinheads, you know, I would see, I'd see, you know, I'd see a group of people together, you know, I'd see my, you know, kind of a real kind of homogenized uh, group of people. So I'd see, you know, kind of uh, whether they were white or whether they were Indian, uh, you know, a whole, you know, whole groups of people in the sitting room together because they were friends, but it was only when you just kind of scratched the surface and you started to talk about different ideologies, you just kind of thought, well, okay, this guy's dressed as a skinhead, you know, and they've got kind of, you know, you're talking about sort of, um, you know, kind of racist sympathies. And that it just, everything was, everything moved so quickly. You didn't have time to kind of, necessarily think about the the impact it's only in retrospect that i realize you know the age that i am and i look back to the 1970s how you know how incendiary everything was you know in terms of politics in terms of um you know racism especially you know in an area where where i grew up which was very very kind of multicultural um i don't know if any of this is making sense but it was kind of everything was it moved very, very quickly, and a lot Literally. of it was very, very confusing for a lot of, especially teenagers. Mm. We were trying to kind of work this whole, this right. whole shebang out. Um, well, and you're trying to uh, find who you are separate yeah. from. Well, in your book, you do quote mm -hmm. Susie from an interview in Melody Maker, where she said, um, "The vicar becomes the scientist, and he applies his religion to science, and the doctor." becomes the religious person and applies his medicine to religion. So that, yeah. that's quite confusing, <laughs> especially for a young yeah. person. I've, I've kind of, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, you know, I think she's saying that people can change. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Or at least yeah. adapt. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, I mean, 
again, I'm I'm not. I don't, it's, there's no kind of like instant coffee. Just add water, and here is the answer. Ping. But I think it's um I think it 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 is it's being it's being distrustful of any particular sort of um dogma or any kind of as I was saying any kind of ideology and you know whether it's politicians or whether it's you know whether it's to do with um you know whether it's secular or non non secular I don't think it matters I think it's having this this distrust of authority. And I think that probably comes from uh, her early experiences of childhood, you know, when she had her own trauma, um, when she was, I think, I can't remember whether she was nine or, or 11 years old. But I think that was really, really deep rooted about her trust in, you know, in authority figures. Uh, I think that that keeps on coming back in what I'm writing now. I think that was really deeply quite, um, how can I put it? Damaging is a is a very strong word, but I think that everything scarring, was, scarring, and I think that lots of things were a defense mechanism. You know, it's yeah, like, I think it affected her relationships a lot from oh, from sure. just you know. Well, there, so there was this like Stepford Wive consciousness at the time too, and of I think, the suburbs. And I I read somewhere where she. She felt it's not that she uh, rebelled against it. She just, you know, she knew it was not for her, and she, and she yeah. sort of escaped that whole <clears throat> domesticity, that whole type of. I, I sort, do have one know. question. Um, her father is mentioned not a whole lot, and I do know that this is specific about her and her music and all, but I'm not seeing anything about her mother. Was she at all close to her mother? I know that she had. What appear to be significantly older siblings? Was she the youngest? Yeah. Um, I think she I can't you've really, really caught me out on this one. I I can't okay. I can't remember. I think she had I think she had several siblings. I don't I don't know if she I don't know if she was the youngest. I think she may have been the I'm gonna get really, really slated for this, but I think she may have been the middle child. She was either the middle or the youngest. But I think that the song, the beautiful song, and I know this is the song that is Morris's, one of his favourite all-time songs, Mother, you know, which segues into Oh Mine Papa. I mean, it has been, it has been said. There's a real, you know, there's almost like a real kind of um, how can I put it? It the the the, the lyrics for mo for mother are quite kind of acerbic, a bit like you know the the lyrics for maybe it's comparing apples with pears, but mother on you know Pink Floyd's The Wall, you know, it's like you know you're 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 protect you're the person that, that protects you that nurtures you but also kind of uh, gets inside your head, you know, and becomes like a, how can I put it? Um, anyway, I think she, she felt, sings well, that is kind of pedantic. tenderness towards her father. So, Oh, Mine Papa has much more kind of, it's more, um, even though it's not, um, it's not her original song, um, it's much more tender and it's much more giving. Whereas I think that her mother, I think they had quite a strained relationship. I think her mother wanted to be friends with her, but I think they ended up kind of, I think 
conceivably they were too much alike personality wise but i think that susie you know she um ever her own person i think that maybe they were a bit like you know they were a bit like that really i think well and and i i too have to wonder there's a um repeated theme when it comes to the trauma that she went to that's alluded to um when she was around nine or 11 where uh, a child will a girl will tell her mother and her mother just kind of goes oh yeah whatever yeah or doesn't right. believe her or tells her that's just the way it is you you know yeah. and yeah. and i i know when i was a teenager i raged against that i was so mm. angry that it was my fault i was yeah. busty you know yeah. So I just yeah. had to accept that men were going to stare at my chest and yeah. I was 11. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think, and, and again, j- just kind of leaping ahead and you have to forgive me, but I'm, ver- I'm very much in, in the present about what I'm writing now. And the reason why I mentioned that is because a song like um, Circle on A Kiss in the Dream House. It's, it is about that kind of perpetuation and, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times and, and the older I get, the more it kind of keeps on springing on me, you know, kind of hits me as a motif is, you know, is the repetition. We try not to repeat what our parents do, but then I can hear myself, you know, oh, my dad would say that or I've got my dad's sense of humour. So we hope the good stuff comes out, but we right. try not to repeat what's been <laughs> It sounds really dreadful. What's been kind of doled out to us because it was all done with the best intentions. Um, but I think that I think, yeah, so it's an interesting one because I think that in if we're if we're talking about a trajectory, I think the scream and join hands are really, and I mean this in the best possible way, they're re- they're really raw, they're really visceral. But I think that kaleidoscope and beyond. They go into the more kind of, you know, the, like true uh, escape and uh-huh. into the realms of, you know, you know, beyond the yellow brick road, you know, into something which is right. something more. Um, well, I think that has to do. I think that has to do a lot, too, with the the talents of the additional band members. Oh, yeah. yeah. The personnel oh, change. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Very, very uh, much. So. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, that's um, Budgie joining as the drummer and John McGayock. As yeah. The I, I yeah. do want to say that I would like a, uh, I suppose, a poetry book of the lyrics, because yeah. for me, sometimes uh, with uh, with my ADHD sensitivities, uh, music can be distracting and it just yeah. puts me off. Right. Whereas yeah. being yeah. able yeah. to read the lyrics because they are especially, uh, you know, as time went by, they're 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 more profound. They're, oh, they're God. very yeah. moving. Yeah. yeah, they are. Yeah. I mean, I think that, but I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, a, le- a learning curve for me mm-hmm. is that, you know, whether they're written by, you know, whether they're written by Severin and interpreted so beautifully by Susie or whether they're Susie's lyrics. These are guys, um, I need to, I, I don't want to get too misty eyed about this, 
but the the allusions and how well read they were and how they knew how they knew their film i mean there was so much kind of there was so much kind of cultural capital uh, right. with what they were writing about just extraordinary i mean susie was reading um you know reading ballard and camus and those things were all coming out and it's a really interesting thing because I don't know whether you think about this, but I often think about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, PT, pre-technology, you know, when, what did we do? How did we entertain ourselves? Well, you know, we listened to music, you know, we read, you know, we painted, what you know, whatever it was, or we kicked a ball around. But, you know, there were times when we just kind of, that's what we had, you know, we and they and they had books and they really had a, voracious appetite for reading everything and they were switched on to things by other people as well so um yeah yeah there are lots of uh, i agree with you about the poetry i'm I'm so glad you said that because lyrically you know you know and how how the vocal is delivered it's extraordinary and and i just imagine if an angry teenage girl hadn't decided to get up there no matter what yeah he would not have her poetry yeah. Did she absolutely. would she have been a poet? Would she have gotten a musical career going if she hadn't yeah. decided that day to scream the Lord's Prayer in in protest? Yeah, yeah. Well even well, even then, I mean, that was because uh, you know, um on that um that day uh, another another band pulled out. So it was all yeah. it was all very serendipitous. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. The 100 Club concert is what, or the mm-hmm. festival is what you're alluding yeah. to. And yeah. I read that she, they thought, she and Severin thought, they're going to kick us off the stage before we finish our set. They're going to. If I was inspired to do something now, if I was four years younger now, I wouldn't be in a band. Because it's too easy. And it's, uh, it's the thing to do if you, if you're a bit bored. Whereas it wasn't then. When, when we first started the band, it was a bit of a dare and a bit of a risk. They're going to just pull us off the stage because, uh, you know, yeah. we don't know what we're doing. We're, we have no practice, no, you know, experience with this. Which which is perfect. So that is early American punk. They were totally mm-hmm. vulnerable. You know, they made themselves totally yeah. vulnerable to, mm-hmm. like, worst case scenario and they were prepared to accept it. And to me, that's like yeah. total... That's like real. That is punk rock. That's really. courage. That's, I mean, that's cool. It is, and that and that again. That again. It, it's really hard to think about. I mean, obviously, I, I'm again. I, I promised I wouldn't kind of play the age card again, but it's it's so, it's okay. like it, it it really is everything fit everything fitting into place because what have you got? You're living in this kind of suburban nightmare, and and what do you want to do? You want to kind of. I remember. Um, I think. This is a misquote, but I should be able to quote my own book. You know, Susie wanted to make a sound, you know, to make people's guts fall out. You know, it's like, you know, make something happen, you know, um, be provocative. And that's exactly what they did. You know, I think I think they were they were over there rehearsal in 10 minutes. You know, I think Sid Vicious had had enough then. And then it was just like it was game on, you know, and then 21 minutes um, yeah. or, or thereabouts. So yeah, it, it, it's it's extraordinary, you know. Make something happen. This DIY aesthetic, you know. Don't wait for something to happen. Don't wait for someone to approach you and just say, "I think you should do this." And really not caring, you know, just going for it. I just think that's the 
That was right. the real strength. And as you say, that's why we've got this poetry today. Mm-hmm. Well, and the Grundy, no. the Grundy thing, when she, when the the Sex Pistols went on the Bill Grundy show or Today Show, I think it was called. Yeah, that yeah. also was very similar, and that Queen was supposed to be on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they backed out, and so they yeah. they made an emergency call to Malcolm McLaren or somebody got yeah. the Sex Pistols. Yeah. What a good idea! And then Susie got on that train from probably mm-hmm. Chislehurst, I guess, and hustled on over to the studio. And that turned out to be like the big, yeah. you know, that was the <clears throat> biggest moment of her life, probably. Yeah, yeah at that point, course, yeah. because I mean, the uh, the host made her well, go basically went to viral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. and basically, I'm pretty sure the host was just hitting on her. Oh, yeah. He was kind of a. Yeah. Yeah, kind yeah. Of yeah. Practically well, I, a pedophile. That was, yeah. Well, that was that was the that was the that was the end of his career. I mean, I think that that yeah. whole that whole thing was aided and abetted um, rather well by the free drink in the green room, both before and afterwards. It's a great story, and you know what? Um, I remember, however old I was, you know, in my um, gosh. Now that was, let me see, that would have been, that was either, was that 76 or 77? I should know that. But it was, I think, I think it, so I was, I was 11, this is a disclosure, I was 11 years old at the time. And I saw that in my sitting room on the TV. And it was just like, you know, every, I think there were like around the UK collective jaws dropping because it was meant to be like one of these kind of anodyne, Chat shows, you know, really kind of very, very beige, very unimaginative, very, you know, not contentious. And no one had heard, you know, the language that is kind of, you know, to a penny now. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was it was an extraordinary moment. And, and you know, and Susie's there and 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 Severin is 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 there as well. But, yeah, it's um, but I think the host, Bill Grundy was um as i don't know whether you have this this saying in the states but was, was well lit you know he was quite oh, yeah you no know, he was kind oh, of yeah. to the wind <laughs> yeah yeah so, yeah it. it was uh but yeah i mean he provoked them and steve jones just kind of took the bait like that he just said you know whatever he did and the rest Very is history but, well, but yeah, great- and you you have to applaud the oh. fact that Susie actually outshined the sex pistols well, to follow oh, yeah. it up, there was this in picture. In a, and in not a, just because the host was hitting on her. There was yeah. this picture in the paper, like the next day, mm-hmm. where she's doing this like really exaggerated, sad face. She's got like this blonde hair and suspenders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, hold Dracula makeup. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. that, and that really probably created a real uh, indelible image in people's minds as well. You know? Yeah, yeah. But these moments, I mean, talking about technology and where we are now and the fact that all of us can connect by Zoom is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was that moment. And I had a really interesting conversation with Steve Lillywhite about this, who produced the screen. And so naively, I said to him, you know, were you aware of the, um, the you know, the John Peel session that the band had done before they went into the studio to record the screen? And then it was all the kind of, you know, sign the banshees do it now before they start they sign to polydor and what you have to remember is unless you had a cassette tape and you recorded that uh that peel session with those early songs you know love in a void you know um etc then you didn't get it you missed it and then it was gone 
So it was the same with the Grundy thing, you know, um, as a kid sitting, you know, in front of the TV, um, you know, watching that, you, it, you couldn't like, oh, I'm going to play that back again. It was just yeah. one of those moments and everything happened very, um, as I said, very quickly, very spontaneously. And uh, and yeah, and that moment is like, you know, it, it did, as you say, it, it continues to go viral. But now that language is like, as I say, it's it's like it's in our culture. But then it was just like, <gasps> you know, yeah, and I, bet that had, I bet that had the tongues wagging in suburbia. I can yeah. assure you it would really watch the really- pearls. Yeah, I, I liked what she said to him too. She said, "I really wanted to meet you." I've always wanted to meet you. Did you really, yeah. Susie? She was just being like coy with him, and he said, "Oh, maybe we'll meet after." We'll meet after, shall we? <laughs> you dirty son, <laughs> you dirty old man. I've always wanted to meet you, and I've heard her say that multiple times in different interviews. It's like one of yeah. her. That's one of her go-tos. I've always wanted yeah. to meet you. You know, yeah. like, what's yeah. that mean? Yeah. You know, because like, you gotta wonder. But uh but you can you can just see. I'm so yeah. You know, I'm really glad we're talking that talking about that because you can see. I mean, these guys are all so young. You know, they really are. That they're they're, they're they're teenagers. You know, they are. They're they're young, <clears throat> and wide-eyed, and then you've got the converse. You've got this kind of real. I mean, chauvin. This doesn't do it justice, you know, this real like kind of predatory attitude, you know, oh, we can meet afterwards. And it's just like, wow, you know, it's uh yeah, yeah. But she has that a was way. quite if yeah, you that look was quite her... endemic in the 1970s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She has a way in like in these interviews of for the most part, if not holding her own, sometimes you know, con- uh uh controlling an interview, you know, with yeah. the, with the, with the with the journalist or host or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there was one other interview that I saw her do with uh, his name was uh, Jonathan Ross. Have you ever seen that one? Um, Is that I the handcuff that interview? One, but I know that's the, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm about, I'm about to, I'm about to get there, but anyway, sorry. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We're getting into your second or third okay, book. Go ahead. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, that one, that, that guy, he was like, he he was uh, he called her old. You know, mm-hmm. he said, and he was he was talking about their music. Had been out was outdated uh, and good. Yeah, I've seen and, him on like the the great quiz show. I mean, it or, was a ball. Uh, but... It's like this uh, <laughs> quiz show, uh, and um, I've seen him on that. And he tends to try to be provocative. Yeah, he was very provocative. Yeah, in fact, is. one of his guests threw mm-hmm. water, and one of the other guests, not Susie's, just because mm-hmm. she probably would have jumped his ass if you had but yeah well but uh i mean it got to be pretty she i mean what i one of the things that i admire about her and uh, you know i am a fan as you can tell is that she doesn't suffer fools gladly and you know and i think it's again it's that kind of authority thing you know she it's it ultimately it's about the music you know it and 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 you know nothing nothing else matters i mean obviously I mean, I've 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 read so many interviews for research purposes, and I, I know that, that you that you have as well. But it really is, you know, it, it's when you get onto a subject about, you know, talk us about talk to us about literature or talk to us about, you know, about film. But I think that these these interviews, I mean, you've got that you've got that Radiohead film, meeting people is easy, and it's all about the kind of treadmill of interviews being asked the same, you know, what's your favorite color? over and over and over and over again 
And I think that what that what you what you do, and you've seen Lou Reed do this, and you've seen Iggy Pop do this, and count and David Bowie do this, countless other, you know, fantastic, you know, kind of uh, you know, wonderful personalities. Yeah, personalities. And it's boring, you know, and it's boring and it's tedious. And um, but obviously that's part of the that's part of the the kind of promotional treadmill, you know, you want to get the music out there. You want people to buy the records. You want people to come to the gigs. But a lot of it is just really just like facile. So, so many of her responses are really, really close to the bone. But also they're also they're also they're really, really funny. But she in terms of the band, she rules. I mean, you know, she's the manager. She's the she's the she's the front person. She's the ringmaster. I think it's okay to say that. Yeah. She's orchestrating but, everything and it's like, and she's brilliant at it, you know, um, yeah. maybe hence Susie and the Banshees, you know? Right. The, uh, yeah. the energy I get from her when I see her in an interview is kind of uh, Philip saying that she would really respond if somebody were to throw water on her. And for me, what I think of is what she would be doing is, the philosophical equivalent of um, I'm rubber and you're glue, you know, kind yeah. of like, well, you've thrown water at me. Well, she's kind now of a baller. I don't know if she would take the higher road. I think she might, you know, know. swing her microphone. Yeah, she'd probably kick his ass. He's already handcuffed to the other guy. Her as an older person, right, right, more mature. That's true. So I think a punk would respond physically Whereas the person that she's become is more, you know, the adult version of I'm rubber and you're glue. So now you look like an idiot because you've splashed water on me. What Mm. have you accomplished? Well, uh, okay. So some of the videos I've seen of her current, of her current. Uh Uh-huh. I'll let Lawrence respond in a second, but Uh she's very physical still. Like really? she got okay. upset um, because she didn't like something that was going on with the engineer at one of the shows. She got mad and threw water, ironically, I guess, at him mm-hmm. and then yeah. threw down the mic stand. Which could be dangerous considering he's working with electric. Well, she was introducing um, Happy mm-hmm. House and she ended by saying, it. I'm not yeah. happy, you know. But that, yeah. And then there was another instance where she kind of comically somebody was trying to help her with uh, the headset or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she went and grabbed him by the throat you know she's still very kind of uh a uh, physical person yeah, yeah. ornery yeah. yeah okay ornery yeah yeah you know yeah. she's got this she's got a good sense of humor you see that in these interviews yeah. and stuff but a lot of people paint her as the ice queen you know mm-hmm. as the dispassionate yeah. kind of well and to me dispassion dispassion does not go physical yeah but yeah. that's well, me she did spend but the then, night in jail okay what time, you're so. talking about is like, her music versus an interview and I think yeah, the yeah. the dynamic would be different. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was I was just going to say I saw I saw two of those gigs um, when you know when she Ooh, she was jealous. This summer. I saw her play at Latitude Festival, which is a big festival in Suffolk, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, that was so electric. It was just amazing. Um, and then at the Troxy, um, I saw her play the second night there. And yeah, and there were, so at Latitude, it was quite funny, actually, because, um, you know, I mean, it's really amazing when you think about the Susie and the Banshees of the 1970s, 
1980s and 1990s. So there's the guy at the back who's trying to do his best with his kind of his, you know, his his um his MacBook. And so they've got some kind of pre-recorded stuff and it doesn't work. So Susie, you know, she just says, let's get on with it. And I think it was, I think it was part of the sequence they had in um, I think it was spellbound, but they just went on with. I mean, it was that real, you know, it was like no matter whether it's, you know, 2023 or 1976 at the 100 club that that kind of that spirit and that um how can i put it that being slightly sort of obstreperous is still there but it and that's fantastic because she went through song by song by song by song by song without catching her breath at all um mm. but yeah i mean i've got i've got friends that saw um they saw uh when you know mcgeeh uh uh, was fired and then Robert Smith took over I think it was the um no it was post nocturne so I think it was John Valentine Carruthers um in about 1984 and you know and they they, they it hasn't appeared in in you know in what I've written yet but yeah she's still very physical and I think she'll get physical if if the bouncers are being physical with the audience, you know, I think she takes real umbrage about that. You know, uh -huh. she's trying to kind of protect her, <laughs> trying to protect. I don't know why I'm laughing at kind of casual violence, but yeah, I think she has been known to kind of no, it can be funny. Kick, kick a bouncer in the face now and again, you know, yeah. and maybe sort of maybe. You know where bread's buttered. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm not condoning that, but yeah, she, she is physical and doesn't right. you know doesn't take any nonsense yeah didn't they abandon a uh gig one time over sound issues um her budgie essentially walked off the stage wasn't there an incident like that that that, that wouldn't surprise me yeah. that, that that would that wouldn't surprise me yeah i th i think that susie would have led the charge in that yeah because again she she you know called the shots on that yeah yeah but by all counts, she is with the fans. Like I've, we've mm -hmm. talked to people who met her after shows and stuff like that, and she's very chill and cold with fans. But it's just you know, yeah. she's kind of a taskmaster, I guess, kind of like yeah, yeah. Frank I think so. Princess, you know, yeah, I think so. I mean, I know, I know that um, when she and Budgie struck up a relationship, um, you know, he he said that you know there there is this. There is this, there's, you know, Susie has to front it, you know, and I mean that in a, in a kind of plethora of ways, you know, being being the person that can't party all night because she's got to save her voice, you know, being the spokesperson for the band. But I think that when they got together, he realised, you know, there was a very, you know, that, that a lot of it was, you know, that we all have our defences, yeah, but I think that underneath it, I think there's a real, you know, there's a really, you know, I think there's, there was a much kind of softer interior. Mm -hmm. I, I know that's what he, what he found that, right. you know, basically, well, someone has, you know, it's a bit like, I'm sure there have been volumes of books written about leadership and, you know, kind of democratization and things like that, you know, um, I think that whoever whoever joined, you know, it was always the nu nucleus of Severin and uh, Susie. But, you know, the most obvious thing is it's basically Susie. So as much impact as Severin had, it was always Susie. And I think that's a really hard role to play if you're fronting everything. Yeah. But right. I think with the fans and the people that, you know, she I think Susie was, I think, especially in the early days, 
she really railed against this kind of, you know, this sort of iconoclasm and the fact that everyone is like, what? We're used to being spat at, you know? We're used to being kind of derided and, and people shouting things and chucking beer. And I think that when audiences actually started to, you know, as well as dance, they started to listen. I think she found that really, really difficult because she wanted, she kind of, she fed on the confrontation. But I think it was only, you know, maybe coming into Kaleidoscope and then Juju and then A Kiss in the Dream House, that it was more of an acceptance about, you know, this real love, this genuine kind of fandom that people had for the band. Yeah, more adulation than confrontation. Um, yeah, yeah, nice one. Yeah. So I like in the book how almost I don't know about almost every song, but so ma- so many of the songs you have a film associated with them. Um, yeah. Is that right. something you plan to continue with the next book? Oh yeah, today? it gets better. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. But I think I think the motif kind of running through the the early years book is this real love of um of kind of Hitchcockian sort of psychodrama. Mm-hmm. It really is. And there's a real I think with Hitchcock, I don't know what you feel, but there's almost there's almost like a kind of there's almost like a gleefulness in in his films you know there's yeah there's there's dark humor and Mm. i think susie you know it's like she and severin they they pick up on that but yeah it's um i mean the filmic the filmic stuff is 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 really is really really strong you know and i remember she said that you know she saw eraserhead and she thought it was a comedy you know it really made her laugh (laughs) you know so but that just goes to show there is there's a real, you know, it's basically, you know, it's it's artifice and it's escape and it's not real life and it's not being kind of, you know, um, being violated or abused. So it's all this escapism into the rich kind of tapestry of, of right. film. Yeah, taking back the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way, yeah. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but in the birds, Hitchcock didn't tell Tippi Hedren there were going to be actual birds in the attic. Right. That's right. why Hitchcock is sort of a controversial figure. He life. played little pranks <laughs> he, like he, that uh, on his stars. He, he's been yeah. not acceptable yeah. behavior all the yeah. time. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I know, I know that, and it, and it's not maybe it's no. I mean, you know, I know as that film evolves, you know, it's Tippy Hedren, isn't it? In 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 the birds, I know yeah. the, she goes from you know looking very you know really immaculate really demure to being destroyed and i know there have been many Never kind of things written about that yeah it's just right it's, it's sort of it, similar to the way that uh um uma thurman has pushed back on quentin tarantino over certain things that were done during the making of kill bill she, right. yeah she felt like that there were moments where she was caught off guard and uh exploited taken advantage of yeah for the sake of the director's you know, wanting to get a right, a right. certain shot right, and it's pretty yeah. diabolical when you think about it. But yeah. um, when getting ready for this, I listened to a couple podcasts, and one of them mentioned a essay that um, by someone named Kevin Petty. So I and he just mentioned it in passing during a show. I think it was about Juju, and I I, I wish I could cite the podcast because that would be polite, but. Um, but it was called The Image of Susie Sue and the Politics of Gender. And mm. I read that thing. That was a tough read. It was very, Lisa thinks 
Was that what you said? You thought maybe they leaned on the thesaurus too much? I mean, yeah, I uh, think it so. was a scholarly piece. And I don't really know where the author was going other than trying to explain where Susie fit in in the patriarchy of punk rock history or yeah. music history. But I felt like it had some points, some mm. interesting points to it because she is sort of a seminal female figure. Um, did you guys get a chance to look at that at all? I, I I I haven't I didn't get a chance to look at oh, it. No. I failed miserably on that on that score. Oh, it was. Uh, I think there was. There might have been. If if we're talking about the same thing, there might have been like one sentence with three five syllable words, <laughs> and that's just it's unnecessary. You can use a smaller word and still sound intelligent. So here's the know. here's the links that I would go to when I was a kid to to find out stuff. And this was before the internet blew up, you know, there were message boards and uh, things of that nature, but I went to the bookstore and I found, uh, uh, well, I didn't find it at the bookstore, but I found that I could order a book called one hit wonders and meaning and punk rock. that had some information in there about the sex pistols and Susie. So I ordered it and it took like, I don't know, six weeks to get here. I don't have it anymore, but I thought it was interesting that he used that as a source for we his might, paper. It might still be in the basement in those books. Well, it could be, yeah. But um <laughs> we 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 have books we haven't unpacked since we moved in. In any event, oh, I yeah. think to try to he tried to read things into the fact that uh, um there was symbolism in the artwork on the album covers, like a kiss in the dream house, uh with Susie staring at herself in the mirror, one yeah. figure with her eyes closed and open. Yeah, suggesting, yeah. you know, that was uh that sort of a uh, pillar of the, of the band of what the, the overall statement the band was trying to make. And they were like the other band members are above her head, like in thought bubbles as All if right. kind of a reflection of the, uh, the patriarchy of rock and roll that she was still, you know, had her, you know, she had her place, but it was not. Okay. <laughs> so it, it was a little bit esoteric is a little bit, okay. uh, you know, some leaps of logic. She, uh, she seems a lot more, plain speaking i don't think she would have put that, that type of thought i don't know i could be wrong but yeah yeah she she seems more I, direct i saw an interview with charlie rose yeah where she seemed to pass uh you know pass gas and if she had not she sure played off played she off did, like that. she said excuse me did yeah. you know i mean do you understand how much influence you've had on fashion in terms of those people who look to you as a first sort of female star of punk rock um, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> yeah, she said, excuse me. If she didn't, she played it off that she wished she had because she she totally owned it. You know, she's more. And when and the, when she fired or not when she fired, but when the, when the two when John McKay and uh, and Morris left the band, she referred to them as the arty ones. So she didn't think of herself as as someone particularly I mean, hard. very smart but I, I think that some of the, the the leaps of logic that that paper made were a little bit much but it was it's still an interesting read and since mm. nobody else has read it i'll just go ahead and recommend it for people that are interested i'll put a link in our show notes but mm-hmm. well i know um, i know that with a, a kiss in the dream house that's when um it's quite an interesting one actually because another of the guys that i interviewed was rob o'connor who did the artwork for uh, took over from Jill Mumford, who did the artwork for the screen, 
and then did join hands, which was a very, very rushed affair. That was going to be, um, I think there was, there's an artist who worked on uh, Derek Jarman's um, Jubilee, John Maybury, who's the, who does the illustrate, who's done these beautiful illustrations on join hands. But Rob O'Connor's done the front cover and he worked on um, Kaleidoscope and Juju. Um, I'm just thinking about the, you know, the, the article that you're referring to. And I think that, you know, it was, it, I think that, again, the band, if they didn't, if or if Susie didn't like kind of uh, ideas for artwork, then she, then she would say so. But I think A Kiss in the Dream House, because again, I'm just, you know, writing about that at this, at this very, very point in time. I think it's more to do with this, the, the secession imagery of Gustav Klimt and all the gold and the arrows and and symbols and things like that. But I but I need to read that article and 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 get and get my head around it. But um, but yeah, I think it's probably to evoke this idea of you know sort of Alice through the Looking Glass and you know I think they I think they were uh, kind of experimenting. I think that Mike Hedges introduced them to some. Um, uh, to Susie to some interesting substances at the time. So I think he introduced her to LSD at the time. So I think they were go they were going through a real like sort of Beatlesque kind of uh sort of epiph epiphanic time with the mm. music. I think that's reflecting in artwork. But let's we we kind of covered um we've kind of covered Going Hands and Juju as we talked about, but the other two albums that you went over in the book and we should say we should mention we're talking to lawrence hedges author mm -hmm. of susie and the banshees the early years the early years well this sorry. this volume is the early years. the early years yeah first of there's more to come more to but um so i i didn't want to you know we don't want to do an aaron's audio audibles necessarily but i thought i'd pick on a few songs from those from i'm gonna have to take off in about two minutes anyway so you might oh, have to finish okay. without me Mm -hmm. all right Aaron Ooh. it's been excellent but, as um, always um let me see I had like two things I didn't get to one okay. the coolest name I ever heard of is in this book it sounds like it was lifted from a rolled doll short story Liddy Papa Georgiou huh right That's, okay yeah and um the uh the other thing was I'd never seen the word Mancunian before is that having okay. to do with manchester i guess it is yeah so if you're mancunian then then you're from manchester yeah born and bred yeah Interesting. Right. that's that, that's yeah I'm, I'm tapped out anyway then all right all right aaron real quick would you consider uh, yourself a norwidian or a norwoodite it's norwoodian okay yeah go bananas okay yeah, but go bananas. It's a baseball team. All right. <laughs> yeah, he's wearing a shirt. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, okay. So we'll we'll wrap it up with um, Lawrence, and we'll talk about some of these songs if 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 we get some more time here. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So the songs on the screen I, that that was like the first album that I ever the first album that I really dove into. I had a I had a night shift. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. job delivering newspapers and so I got hold of the album and I played it uh, just about every night you know I had about four or five hours or certain songs that I played for a period of time I'd play it just about every night so I got to know it it, it, it fluidly like not necessarily the titles of the songs but it's all it all came together been you know. listening to this album when you saw <laughs> the uh, aliens uh, it, uh, 
it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I don't see what are you suggesting? <laughs> Maybe the aliens were attracted to Susie Sue's music. Well, it could be. <laughs> um, so uh, he was not the only one who saw aliens that night in the Norwood, Cincinnati area, by the way. Okay. It did make the papers. There were sightings of UFO. Wow. So I suspect people are probably more familiar with songs like Helter Skelter and Metal Postcard um, from uh, The Scream. But the the four songs I wanted to talk about, we already kind of talked about the uh, switch a little bit. riff sounds at the beginning it reminds me a little bit of like rem actually yeah yeah uh i love the way uh i love the way she kind of shifted uh, uh the way she she phonetically said some words like categories to make it fit poetically mm-hmm. um, yeah um we talked about crossing a wire to f- infuse humanities i don't want to spend a whole lot of time since we already touched on some of these things with switch but i did find a an article where someone quite uh, headily tried to extrapolate that this al- album should or this song switch should be a trans a trans anthem mm-hmm. and that line cross wires and fuse humanities was was the main reason that uh, they contended that and uh, and and that's where you know taking the art and making it fit the narrative maybe right. but the drum roll. The Kenny Morris drum roll at about 340 oh, yeah. is really great. I love that. Yeah. And that yeah. sort of shifts it into a different uh, beat. Yeah. Yeah. And the remainder of the song, yeah. um, it's about six minutes, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think that again. The drum roll I, is six minutes or the song? The song. But that's oh, somewhat unusual. Long, quite a long, I mean, for that time, quite a long Banshee song. Um, but I was going to say that one of the things that when I spoke to Steve Lillywhite, he said that he was really, you know, he was he really took uh, Kenny Morris under his wing, and you know, and so they they they'd have some, you know, he was really trying to kind of get his confidence up about what he could do. So I think that obviously Kenny Morris is very much, you know, a very very brilliant drummer on both albums, The Scream and Join Hands. But I think Steve Lillywhite brings out the best in all of the musicians on the album. He does a fantastic job. I think that I think that Kenny Morris wanted to keep him, you know, they wanted to keep him, uh, but then they moved on to Mike Stavrou for for join hands. But yeah, it's a good good song, really good song. Yeah. Well, and another one's Jigsaw Feeling. That's uh, very popular, I'm sure, um, in her current tour. I don't like, I do I, like I think that song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. I saw that she plays that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I like the frenetic nature of the guitar playing on this one. Yeah. Uh, sort of 
musically it sort of sounds like uh about a schizophrenia or something uh, yeah uh, well i think i think one of the quotes from her is is kind of is you know her her limbs not quite doing what she wanted them to do you know and i would imagine that kind of metaphorically Right. You know, jigsaw is like, you know, where where does she fit? Where do we all fit? You know, and feeling like you were talking about aliens, like completely like disembodied or or having a kind of otherness or wanting to be elsewhere. But I went after pure, that really eerie kind of uh, John Mackay, you know, kind of guitar led song, you know, then that goes into jigsaw feeling. That is just that still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It's just like, where did that come from? It's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I got Susie's quote right here, actually, the one you just referred to from your book. It's when your limbs won't do what your brain wants them to. You're so confused that you can't coordinate your limbs to do something positive, and you just twist yourself in knots. That was yeah. Susie's quote about this song. Yeah. So very popular. Uh, and uh, and, and for me with this song, the lyrics really hit home. While I think Philip's more, you know, Philip tends to be more about the music. I tend to be more about the word. I think that's oh, yeah. one thing that appeals to me about this band, though, is that, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about. It's got both. Yeah. The, yeah. the pop culture mm -hmm. references and the literature and, and movie, you know, references, yeah. which leads me into Carcass. <laughs> When I listen to this song, when you listen to it mindlessly, when it's just playing, and you're like, oh, man, this is like a real catchy pop tune. You know, this is really, mm -hmm. this is kind of a little bit of a departure from the rest of the album. Um, but then when you look at the lyrics, it's pretty gruesome. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I always well, thought I the think lyrics that... was be a carcass, be a tadpole, but it was a dead yeah, pork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The mother that has her son for tea. Yeah, it's, um, it is quite, it, it really is. Yeah, it's it's again very very kind of visceral, but I think that kind of there was this book when I was a child called um, I th I can't remember whether I've seen an interview where Susie mentions it, but it's a book a German book called um, Shock Headed Peter or Strevel Peter, uh -huh. and it's a series of the most kind of so we think about you know about like Grimm's fairy tales or Hans Christian Andersen or or some of those kind of like. Um, German or Austrian folk tales before they become Disneyfied. I mean, they're really deeply unpleasant. You know, they're not kind of kind of children's fodder. But I think that in this book, Stravel Peter, I was at my daughter's house, just incidentally, I was at my daughter's house and she had it in pride of place in her sitting room. And it is about, you know, the kind of um, the perils of of misbehaving as a child, you know, and what you might be threatened with, you know, well, I, you know, and, and, you know, and someone that has their kind of fingers cut off, you know, because they put their hands in the cookie jar or something like that. So again, I think it is meant to be, you know, it is, it's very kind of darkly uh, humorous, you know, really quite, um, you know, I think it, it, it is. And all of these different things, they come from, the sort of inner pages of tabloid newspapers, 
you know, or, you know, in curtain twitching suburbia, or they come from books or they come from, you know, uh, nursery rhymes. So they're a real like, you know, um, so Susie, like, you know, like William, William Burroughs, you know, and then David Bowie subsequently, I think her lyrics become a lot more kind of cut out. So they're all kind of like almost thrown up in the air. And then mm. they're all kind of assembled a bit like a kind of assemblage uh, work of art. So, yeah, they, they are they are quite strong, but I think they're meant to be quite kind of uh, darkly humorous, as we've alluded to before with a lot of the work. Yeah. Clever. Just to go back to Jigsaw feeling again, not to, there, there's a line where she talks about staring at her shoe. Shoe gazing is a term that's supposed to, uh, that's used in punk rock or just rock in general, I guess, sometimes to talk about how vocals and various instruments become almost indecipherable from one another, not another in music. Yeah. And, um, and, and Carter's <clears throat> is clever that way as well. Mm-hmm. I felt like, we talked about the allusions to movies and stuff like that. A movie that instantly came to mind when I was reading the lyrics was uh, Boxing Helena with Sheryl and oh, Finn yeah. and yeah. Sands. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where he, uh, he basically removes the limbs of the of uh, his Sherilyn. lady love. Yeah, and it becomes yeah. a very possessive and uh, complicated <laughs> love story, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah that I would mean, be complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got, again, you've got, you've, you've got that. Sorry. I'm just laughing at what you just said. Um, you've got that. Um, you've got that again, you've got that sort of, you know, real, you know, gallows humor with the, with the song, uh, premature burial. I'm in a state of catalepsy. Can I really exist? That comes from the Edgar Allan Poe poem, you know, when yeah. some you know, someone has this, you know, that they have this um, this believed encounter where where they're actually where they're actually buried alive, you know, and um, and I think that one of the that Susie's lyrics alluding to that is, you know, it's really quite off the cuff. It's well, what a bloody shame, you know. It's like it really just kind of reduces it all to like, well, you know, well, whatever. You know, yeah. okay, so you've been buried alive, but it's it's again taking those illusions and and um, and putting them through the Susie filter, you know, or putting yeah. them through the Severin filter, and they do, you know, I mean, the, these they're 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 meant to be darkly uh, comedic, you know, um, and you know, and all turn, you know, <laughs> they all turn out, it all turns out well in the end, right. or sort of, yeah. Kind of like the um, kind of like a Twilight Zones meets Mary Poppins. Very much so. Or, That's or sitcom. Yeah. Twilight Zone meets sitcom. Like oh, the, yeah. the mundane yeah. commentary juxtaposed against the absurd. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. It's a bit like um, the beginning of um, Blue Velvet, where you've got the Bobby. I think it's. I think it's. Is it Bobby V? You've got the Blue Velvet song at the beginning, and you've got the fake bird. And you've got the picket fence and then you go into the undergrowth and then it's kind of all that kind of slime and mire that kind of lurks beyond. So as you were saying, it's like everything is like 
picture perfect right. and then you just kind of open you kind of open up the door and it's like whoa okay yeah but you're right that's a really lovely juxtaposition that like it, looking through the looking glass sort of totally yeah okay. yeah so suburban relapse i love that that is so diabolical i love when she says her string snapped you know exactly what she means you know i'm sorry that i hit you but my string snapped i'm sorry i missed your cat nap but she's gone off the deep end you know she's yeah. become unhinged so i think it's like lizzie borden i married a max axe murderer you know you're gonna have to <laughs> actually see that movie yeah well i've, <laughs> I've seen it it's been a long oh, really? time now. yeah i think okay. that's was kathleen turner i think right? no mm -mm. okay um no it's a michael myers okay really yeah well, anyway um this this tempo of that song accelerates quickly as it goes along it becomes more faster and faster until the end it becomes more like a two chord punk song whereas the beginning it's kind of like you know like she, like the the protagonist is losing her mind yeah, and then yeah, yeah. by the yeah. end she's completely uh immersed yeah. in her madness you know i mean you meant earlier on you mentioned and it's one of my favorite films and i, I know that i mentioned it the book in the book you know the stepford wives mm -hmm. just extraordinary and it is, you know, it is about, you know, um, you could just imagine, you can just imagine the, the the scene, you know, the kind of, you know, the sort of the floral dress with the gingham apron and someone that has just had, you know, just too much and they're not going to take it anymore. And then, as you say, they go ping. And, but again, it's, it is, it, it is carried out with, with, with incredible kind of, um, deftness and 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 humor as well but but when when i listen to that song it creates such you know and i know you'd appreciate it with the lyric it creates such a strong visual you can just see it you know okay you know right uh i can't bite my lip and count to 10 anymore this is it you know this is where this is where you know they get their comeuppance, you know, they get, right. get their, you know, Tent like, um, you know, Max, it's got the same kind of lightness of touch with, you know, um, Maxwell Silverhammer, you know, yeah. exactly the same, you know, it's got that real tabloidies, macabre, you know, yeah. uh, sentiment. My name is Mud. Yeah. Uh, by uh, Primus. Yeah. Yeah. Another kind of example. Yeah. Um, so, uh, kaleidoscope i did not know kaleidoscope that well i knew the hits you know off a couple of the singles that came off of it like christine and uh happy house i i don't i i appreciate the uh complexity of that song and and the artistry of it but it, it just doesn't do a lot for me happy house okay it? yeah yeah but um christine i do love Christine, 
Um, but okay, so you can almost tell with this album that the groundwork, if you know the story of it, the groundwork of this album was already underway when Budgie and McGayock came on board. And I feel yeah. like you can you can hear that. You can hear that they yeah. enhanced it, they made it better, that their yeah. talents were put to good use. But yeah. it's really a Susie, it's really a Susie Severn album. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, synthesizers and stuff in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Tenant kind of calls back a little bit to uh, uh, let's 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 lynch the landlord by the Dead Kennedys. Yeah. It seems like to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. there was a predecessor actually to that. I think. Inspired by a 1976 horror movie called Tenant by the same yeah, name. Yeah, Polanski film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah. Got a haunting beginning. Um, Steve Severn plays sitar, sitar in it, and I think I think that uh, Susie plays some guitar on this, doesn't she? She does. I mean, that's where she gets out her blue Vox teardrop guitar, right? And play, yeah, and she plays on a she plays on a couple of. Um, songs um gosh my brain my brain is not is not working but yeah she she does and she gets out she plays the same guitar she's been playing the same guitar on her recent tour as well right and she really really remember which one she she play she plays on you get a really again, good view of that guitar on um shadow time the video for shadow time yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a well i was, I was just gonna say if you if yeah um so kaleidoscope is a really interesting one and it's got real i mean without kaleidoscope i wouldn't i wouldn't have written this book at all because the original pitch for the book was actually writing about about kaleidoscope because when i went to you know talking about being the 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 i mean they were all the arty ones you know all the banshees were arty ones but when i went to art school i think that was my kind of uh how can i put it that was my um that was the catalyst for me going to art school, listening to Kaleidoscope, which I know sounds a bit schmaltzy, but it's absolutely true because that was a real, you know, that's a real mind bending album. But the story behind that album is a story of real fragmentation, you know, trying to kind of rebuild the band after the blackheads or the arty ones leave, you know, uh, they, they abscond rather John Mackay and, and Kenny Morris but it's an interesting one because it's two songs from, uh, you know, that are played, you know, Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols plays on it. Mm. And it's when John McKeoch is still under contract with um, with magazine as well. So it's very, very kind of fragmented, you know, finding time in the studio to put everything together. And and it, I don't think it's kind of the most satisfactory of, of, of all worlds for, for the band. But they really get it. They really, really do get it. They really, really do get it together um, in, you know, in, in the end. But um, but yeah, but Christine and, and Tennant and for me, all the songs on the album are really sonically, really extraordinary and, and exciting as well. And it's almost that's the gateway for Juju 
that's like the kind of that, that's like the mezzanine point you know where they're just really jumping off into right. something as you were saying the musicianship of budgie and john mckeoch into something much more experiment experimental and the funny thing is about the arty ones that both budgie and john mckeoch studied fine art as well yeah. so they've gone from two you know, two arty ones with a kind of interim period with robert smith to two more arty ones so yeah right that's an interesting in, in, in Susie's mind she's thinking it seems to me that she she thinks of herself as more of a, 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 a I don't know not an, not an already one you know it's like more what, blue calorie more blue collar yeah maybe. more just more down yeah. to earth maybe or yeah. something. there's something about it well she wanted to go to art school but just didn't think you know she didn't think she was good enough you know yeah. so it's an it's an interesting one I don't know you make of that kind of psychology what you will but she was and remains, you know, an artist. I, I think that's what I think that's what she is. Well, trophy. Yeah. I found out about trophy that uh, again from another podcast, and I'll try to look it up and, and give them credit in the, in the show notes. But Stuart Copeland used the drum beat or the, the drum line from it on "Bombs Away" on Zenyatta Mendata. successful band the police uh is present not to mention that the police have a song called red light just like yeah. you see on this album uh, very popular yeah. Yeah. um yeah. Yeah. she well uh, they also had the producer nigel gray as well that was the police producer and you know and and understanding kind of the spaces in between you know i think that's what i think that's what nigel gray gave the banshees he gave them like in in art you know, you talk about that being negative space. You talk about kind of solid objects and then the spaces in between. But the spaces in between, you know, where the music breathes, I think that's I think that's really important. I know I've seen, you know, Stuart Copeland on no pun intended, but on record kind of praise Budgie's style. And he's just an immense drummer. You know, mm -hmm. he's kind of po polyrhythmic, you know, kind of the Japanese influences, the African influences as well are just incredible, you know. Right. Um, you use the opportunity at the outset of your description in your book to mention that Susie, the, the opportunity of the narrative about this song, Trophy, to mention that Susie wrote a letter that was read at a women's rights to an, you know, to abortion rally that she, yeah. you know, was in support of the, of the uh, yeah. women's rights. Yeah. So I yeah, wonder how right. does that relate to this song? to you in some way um i think i think i mean I, th I think it it does i mean there was there was a question read out in parliament about women's rights and and the abortion act which i think it was uh originally in uh became a, you know became law in 1967 um but yeah it yeah it, it does i mean i mean susie is susie is on record about you know about 
the fact that she um this could be to do with her formative experiences or you know or 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 kind of self-choice you know about the way that parents treat they they can treat their children you know it's like kind of trophy children mm-hmm. and i think that she she may you know i think that trophy is also this idea about how we you know like trophy hunters and the way that we that we view exhibits in museums as well you know kind of or things that are preserved in aspic so i think that what 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 she's around without being too hyperbolic about it is doing things for the right reasons and you know and it's like you know and in and here are my children aren't they beautiful well of course you know of course they're beautiful but you know but who are you having them for are you having them for the children or are you having them for you so i think there's a real kind of the usual sort of duality about that and and you know so and again the catharsis for her you know talking about these things and these motifs that are kind of reoccurring for her and they're playing out in her mind probably on quite a kind of constant basis as you know as as well really you know you know, yeah. ch- you know, children as exhibits, children as trophies, you know, people as trophies as well, trophy hunting, you know, what we right. see in you know, what we see in museums, trinkets and trophies. Yeah. Right. I get that. You know, we don't have children sometimes, you know, uh, but sometimes our friends, how can I say this delicately? They, 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 they do kind of almost view their, their sibling, their kids, their kids and their grandchildren as, of course you're going to love them and you're going to be, but I mean, it's like to the point where you, you know, they're, they're really, it's really insular and everything's, everything's personal about uh, what you say about one of them or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Almost like trophies. Like you said, it's more, this is my possession than this is the good. My per- good yeah. Right under- a I person. Yeah. And, yeah, I, and yeah. I will yeah. say that. Um, this is my trophy. I that. Most of our most of our friends with kids have done a good job. Oh yeah. I mean, their yeah. kids have become responsible adults. Well, it's a good and, thing. I, yeah. I I view as a person who was not able to have children, but how I would have insisted on raising our children is not this is a child, but this is a future person. So yeah. we need to teach yeah. them responsibility. We need to teach them how to behave. It's e- okay. Mm-hmm. Red light. With the professional power, but the Polaroids ignite upon seeing this subject. And the aperture shows too much exposure. Um. Budgie's drums, uh, the flashing sound. I like the video for it. It's a wash in red. It's really startling. Susie's eyes really pop in that video. Um, Till the aperture shuts, too much exposure. Um, yeah. I feel like that's a commentary on uh, voyeurism. Or maybe, again, the, the looking glass, the cool. Feeling hemmed in by fame. Maybe? Well, that paper that paper alluded to the looking glass effect by Cooley, which is a sociological okay. uh-huh. uh, phenomenon, and I feel like that's mm-hmm. maybe a callback to that, incidentally yeah. or not. Um, mm-hmm. I love it. I love this song. Um, yeah, you yeah. know. It's, it's well, really- I think again, that's that's incredible. You know, mu- the musicality and the kind of sonic experimentation. And you know, and then you've got that kind of clatter, and then you've and then you've got the then you've got the kind of 
then you've got the sound of the camera going off. Right. And what I did in the book is I made kind of analogies between that because it's such a filmic song. You've got that film with uh, David Hemmings, you know, Blow Up, which is about the kind of murky world of, of, of you know, kind of underage models as well. And then, it, then I think there's, there's, a, there's a murder in that film. And, um, and it takes you down a really, really kind of murky rabbit hole. And you could just kind of imagine the evocation is, you know, kind of Soho in the 1960s and 1970s and the, um, and the calling cards you know, you know, promising, you know, kind of all, you know, dreams beyond all avarice, you know, with kind of with women and, you know, in what we would, you know, in phone in the red phone boxes in, in, you know, in London. And it's got a real, you know, again, because I think because they're so the the song, as with all of the Banshee songs, they're so kind of rich visually, you're kind of going down this, this dimly lit kind of, uh, you know, uh, staircase into this subterranean world of this kind of, I think I describe it as a damp mattress in the corner, you know, where, you know, where you can kind of carry out your fantasies with, you know, with someone that really doesn't want, I'm being really, really kind of coy here, for someone that doesn't want to be there. Right. And it's about maybe, you know, how people choose to live their lives, how people kind of are inadvertently kind of, or they're coerced into making a living against their will. So, all of those things are really, really prevalent. And it's the it's a really, really kind of seedy, you know, quite sordid right. uh, song. And and they the way that they conjure up that imagery, um, even though I'm sure it's it's conceivably about much more more than I've alluded to or I've articulated, it is just extraordinary. It is painting with words, it's painting with uh with with music as well. And just incredible. I mean, in in a couple of short years, you know, you've gone from, you know, you've gone from, or you've gone from the hundred club, then you go to the scream and join hands, and then to that. I mean, that is just as I was saying about the speed of things happening. It's just right. incredible. Right, it must yeah. have been a whirlwind. So you mentioned that uh, you you noticed the tattoo on Sid's arm, or that that, that was something that needed to be airbrushed out. Well, it was. Yeah, the idea of the song is that you know you're developing your film in your in your dark room, and you're you're seeing something that you should not see. That the prospect of that is what kind of drives that song, and the mystery it's tantalizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. I mean, it's you know, as you were saying, you know, the red light when you know when the you know when when the when the dark room is 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 uh you know is is in full effect. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just it's several layers of the kind of the kind of clandestine, really. But with Sid, I mean, that was his that was his that was on his T-shirt. But in that Ray oh. Stevenson club photo, you can't actually see it. But it's just as well. It's only anecdotally. I know what's on that that shirt. But yeah, but yeah, but that's a really good analogy, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, oh, man. Christine, <laughs> Christine, uh, uh-huh. love that song. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, everybody, everybody knows that song. I think um, it's about Christine Sizemore. Yeah. Per- multiple yeah. personalities. Yeah, 22 uh, personalities. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the uh, movie analogy to three faces of Eve, I think is the, the, the movie that it's 
maybe a novel that it's modeled no, the after. Three, it, yeah, but The Three Faces of Eve is a movie. Yeah. Um, it, it was covered by Simple Minds in 2009. I think it's been covered more than once. Every new problem brings a stranger inside. Helplessly forcing one more to disguise. Christine, the strawberry girl. Christine, banana split lady. Christine, the strawberry girl. Christine, see her face is unfurled. It's just... Yeah. You know, it's it's it slays. It's just really good song. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a brilliant song. I agree with you. Yeah, I love the way she uh, dresses yeah. in the video. She's got like a hat, a fedora on, and I think red blazer or something. It's just always yeah. about yeah. look. You know, being and there are lovely kind of parallels and echoes with the the Rob O'Connor uh, album design as well, where you've got where you've got the where you've got the kind of Venetian blinds as well. And everything is, you know, a lot of things are seen in kind of semi-shadow as well. Really, really, really very, very cool um, video and 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 song, as you were saying. And again, really experimental. They're going in lots of, you know, new directions, you know, kind of using the acoustic guitar fantastically. Could be argued that's a precursor of Bagheer's playing on Spellbound as well, where you've got this real, real rapidity of acoustic guitar. Yeah. And then yes. the little the little riff dancing right over top of that. Just every once in a while, like yeah. there's a loose wire, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Record. It's all very clever. Yeah. But McKeon was, um, I, I've had, I had a really good conversation. I don't know whether you've read The Light Pours Out of Me, the Rory Sullivan Burke no. uh, um, biography of McKeon, but what he what he could do with the guitar, I mean, he was, he was just, just incredible. So the sounds that he could get, you know, the kind of, all of the kind of a lot of the multi-layered instrumentation you have to listen to because I have become a complete nerd about this. You listen to it and you just think, well, is that a synthesizer? You know, is that you know, is that is that an organ playing? Is that an acoustic? But it basically, he got most of those sounds out of his kind of. Um, I think it was Yamaha S3. It just so happened that he was really such a fantastic technician. He could make all of these um, multi-layered sounds that would just kind of sound as though they were coming from here there and everywhere right yeah uh, i have not read that but now we got a new book club uh book that we can <laughs> yeah yeah the, what did you say the well, light... your pick is coming up <laughs> yeah the light pours out of me okay which is a song on the um on the oh gosh it's the first um magazine album With Howard Devoto, uh, who's just kind of jumped ship from the Buzzcocks. Um, Real Life, it's called. Beautiful. You must know that album, yeah? Gorgeous album. I, I've i just started, you know, uh, listening to a little magazine. I like what I've what I've heard. I, I'm, uh, I tend to listen. I'm, a, I'm like a fast fan of John McGayock. I mean, the guy. Yeah. It, it just... I did, Rolling Stone just did his top 500 guitarists of all time. And I was like, I was looking through that and I was like, he's got to at least be in the top in this list. Yeah. Yeah. They had Liz Fair, 
you know, like uh, yeah. um, PJ Harvey, not to yeah. pick on the ladies, but I mean, they had some guitar, you know, like maybe uh, Paul Stanley or something. It's like, yeah, like he, how is he? You, not... you get the feeling that it's somewhat um, uh, based on the taste of the author yeah. of the list yeah. in this situation. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure, Instead sure. Instead of pure, like, yeah. you know. Yeah. To me, he was so inventive, and like you said, you can't discern whether it's guitar or synthesizer. Sometimes you don't know. Well, he, uh, yeah, he's been name checked by. I mean, I I don't know what your aesthetic is with, with these guys, but he's been name checked by everyone from John Frusciante to um, Radiohead's uh, Johnny Greenwood, um, and uh, who else is there? Johnny Marr as well. I mean, Johnny Marr speaks really, really fondly of of uh, John McGeoch and especially that he's playing on Spellbound. So I think he has, you know, he's had real, you know, um, resonance and ripples for, for lots of, for lots of guitarists, you know, really, really is. But I know John McGee in his young years, he would, you know, I think he cited people like, you know, uh, it would be Tony Iommi and, and Richie Blackmore that were among his, you know, his right. kind of guitar heroes. Then he discovered punk and everything changed, of course. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh yeah. That yeah, I, I couldn't believe when he, he wasn't even on that list, but uh, that, that wasn't the only problem. He's great. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad that you're a fan. He's he's amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel should be highlighted? So, yeah, please buy my book. It's brilliant. Amazon, and what was the publisher? So the publisher is a fantastic publisher run by. Um, I'm going to be I'm going to be really quite um, effusive about him. A guy called Jerry Bloom, and it's a publisher. It's based in a place called. Uh, um, uh, he lives in or the office is in Bedfordshire in the UK, but they specialize in um, sports and uh, and music books. And they've got a really, really good, uh, you know, a kind of really comprehensive an exhaustive list of all sorts of genres, whether it's on, you know, kind of post-punk, punk rock, you know, uh, all sorts of things, you know. Yeah. But he's, I'm, I'm really honoured to have a book published with him. And, you know, and if I, you know, um, fingers crossed, there'll be a, there'll be a, the instalment out in June. So. I mean, want to get yeah. that. Yeah. So Weimar, you can publish, you can get it from Weimar or, or, or anywhere, Rough Trade or whatever, whatever's easiest. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, Lawrence. Name of the book is Susie and the Banshees, the early years. And we've really appreciated it. your time. You've been very generous with your time. You have a wonderful rest of your day. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you very much. And we'll speak soon. We have social. Uh, Twitter. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pod. Instagram. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pod. Facebook. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pod. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.